There is an unseen hand to me that leads Welcome to the Unseen Hand Podcast, featuring the pulpit ministry of missionary evangelist Ronnie Brown. Listen in as Brother Ronnie shares the truth of the Bible and how God's unseen hand can lead and guide your life with each and every verse. This hand still leads me as I I want you to look at John chapter number 2, look at verse number 1. We're going to look at a feast of Jesus here, at, and we're going to look at it through the lens of a mercy feast. A feast of God's mercy. John 2, verse number 1. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Both Jesus was called and His disciples into the, to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto Him, They have no wine. Jesus said unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother said unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone, and after the manner of the purification, purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus said unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said unto them, Draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. Then the ruler of the feast had tasted the, uh, when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which knew, which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou, has kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifest forth His glory and His disciples believed on Him. You can be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. A mercy feast. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love You. This morning I thank You for Jesus God, I thank You that we can worship and praise Your name even in the darkest of hours, even when we are at our weakest condition. Father, we find that condition in our text. We find a a people, a, 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 a group of human beings, people that have come to the end of their own sufficiency, come to the end of their own uh, resources. And God, You look upon them in mercy and You meet their needs through your Son, the Lord Jesus. God, I pray you'd make application in our hearts and lives this morning. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. There was an article in the Washington Post not too long ago from associate clinical professor of psychology at Harvard Medical School, Anne Fischel. She said that the most important thing you can do with your kids is... Eat dinner with them. She tells that of the educational benefits that are gained from eating dinner with your children. Children's vocabularies are improved at the dinner table. 
Adolescents who ate family meals five to seven times a week are twice as likely to get A's in school. Amen. You parents want to tip in, make good dinners and have dinner at the table and your kids will get A's. Amen. I don't think we can extrapolate that far. Some are a little bit more handicapped than others when it comes to A's. Myself being the one we ate together all the time and I ate out B's and C's. But it says that they can get A's if we eat together at the table. There are nutritional benefits. Children that eat dinner with their parents at the table are far more likely to eat more fruit and vegetables than sodas and hamburgers. And so if we'll eat at the table, if we'll prepare a meal and eat at the table, there are nutritional benefits. They tend to be more healthy. There are more relational benefits to eating together. Studies have shown that when families sit down and eat dinner together, it reduces high-risk teenage behavior such as smoking, binge drinking, marijuana use, violence, school problems, eating disorders, and sexual activity. One study in New Zealand reported that a higher frequency in family meals was strongly associated with positive moods in adolescence. Well, if you're dealing with a moody teenager in your house, it might be that a dinner would be the antidote for that. You see, there is nothing but positive coming from the family getting together at a table and eating dinner together. I believe we can safely say that there's something significant in sitting down at a meal together. And aren't we kind of created that way? Don't we find ourselves uh, uh, people that are best getting to know each other sitting down at a table and eating dinner together? I mean, I'll be honest with you, when I first came to this church, we had those dinners Every Sunday night. We got together every Sunday night down there at the gym. Every Sunday night. You talk about gaining some pounds in those first years. Every Sunday night we go down there and we would have a meal together. And to be honest with you, it helped all of us gel together to get to know each other better in conversation. It was very beneficial uh, to, uh, to eating together. Uh, you see, eating dinner is vital to courtship and relationships. You, you think about uh, folks that go out on dates, young people. We run into uh, to Sam and, and his lady friend there at the, uh, at the, uh, at the, uh, the place of, of dinner there uh, Friday, uh, Friday night. We'll get to carry out to eat. And we, we, had, we had dinner there and, and we run into them. It, it's great for relationships for to go out and to eat dinner together, to conversate uh, over dinner. Uh, corporate relationships. You ever been to a, a corporate luncheon or a, a, a dinner, uh, a business dinner? Uh, corporate relationship deals are sealed and, and trust is, is made at the dinner table uh, with corporate events. Church members' uh, relationships are strengthened at potluck dinners. I believe it is to, uh, uh, this is to be the reason that God Himself instituted Seven feasts in Israel. Did you know that? God introduced feasts at, at, uh, as part of the law of, of God's people. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, the, uh, the, uh, the Passover Feast, the, uh, the Feast of First Fruits, the, uh, all these different feasts, the Feast of Tabernacles, all of them come together uh, so that God wants His people at a table together to feast. You see, in those times, God is revealing Himself to uh, those people. 
In those feasts, God is revealing Himself to them. During the life of Jesus, there are several occasions at which He sat down to a meal with others and in doing so, revealed aspects of His character, His ability that will do nothing but be of great benefit to us. See, that's what I want to focus on for the next several weeks. Jesus attended several feasts. And in these feasts, I believe that we see the character of Jesus, who He is, what He is like in these feasts, these these different meals. I want us to focus our attention on these instances where Jesus is feasting and sit beside Him and watch His actions and hear His words and experience the personal and spiritual benefit in essence of having Dinner with Jesus. Now, the the only problem with this is Sunday morning. That lunch is going to get bigger and bigger as we go through this series. Now, your Sunday afternoon lunch is going to get bigger. So I'm going to ask you, you're going to have to concentrate. We're talking about a dinner here. We're talking about a meal. You can probably smell the food, the roast lamb, you know, uh, all of the the dainties of the bread, the smell of the bread. And so I need your concentration because we're going to look at these meals and draw for them strength for our own lives. And I want to start at the very first one. The first meal that we see Jesus uh, attending here. You know, after 30 years of being on this planet, 30 years of His early life ministry, Jesus ends that ministry and commences His, His public ministry with this meal. And so we'll see that's very characteristic in the meal that I go to. It is always at the end of a certain ministry. And here, after 30 years of his childhood and adolescent ministry, uh, what he was before his public ministry, he comes and eats this dinner at the wedding at Cana. Now, I would like to call this a mercy feast. A feast of God's mercy. You know, the New Testament word translated mercy is almost exclusively, I mean, I looked up every time mercy is mentioned, it's almost exclusively, I think for one or two different occasions it's not, but exclusively it is a word that means compassion. It means pity to look upon someone, to look upon a people in pity, in compassion. And so everything about this meal indicates Jesus' compassion for the human condition. How we are. Our needs. Our problems. Our deficiencies. Here we see that Jesus is not afraid of those circumstances, but is is willing to come in and meet the need. You see, everything about this meal indicates His compassion. His consideration, His pity for our condition. Every one of us can see the mercy of God in Jesus Christ by tracing the three actions that Jesus did at this meal. So, you know, the best thing to do when we have these narrative portions is just kind of place yourself there. Maybe put on your sandals in your mind's eye and you you put on your 
your robe, your tunic, and then an outer garment, and you maybe have a staff in hand, and you, you, come, to this, you come to this dinner. You've been invited to a wedding. There's the bride and the groom. Uh, they've been wed together through some sort of ceremony. Now they, we all sit at the table, and everybody's laughing. Everybody's having a wonderful time. Uh, uh, glasses are clinking together. There's, uh, the, the bride is blessing. The, uh, the groom is so proud of his, of his new bride. The governor there is leading the celebration. Servants are hurrying back and forth with food and putting it on. Can you place yourself there? Then Jesus comes. And notice Jesus as he sits at the table and what transpires. Trace his actions. Because his actions have everything in the world of how Jesus works in your life and in my life. Notice first of all, Jesus is drawn to our setting. In mercy, Jesus is drawn to our setting where we are. You know, this scene in the biography of Jesus just screams authenticity. Genuine. I mean, you know, how many of us in our life have had the occasion of being invited to a wedding, going to a friend's wedding, attending a, a special occasion, and we've all been there. It's part of, of just daily life or, or, or the life that we lead in this world. How general, how, how just human, how authentic is it just to go to a wedding? I recently encountered an atheist during our outreach on Tuesday night. Knocked on a gentleman's door. He had a little sign on his door. I just knew this was going to be trouble. I knew I was going to be tangling with somebody that had a great distinct opposition uh, to Christianity, to the gospel. So I got into the conversation and I began to talk about Jesus. Anytime I run into conflict like that, I just run to the resurrection. That's my goal. That's my thing. I am, everything rises and falls with the resurrection with me. I mean, that just that seals the deal. It's a historical fact what took place at the resurrection of Jesus. And I run to the resurrection of Jesus. And he's like, oh, there's all kinds of fables and mythological creatures that were raised from the dead. And so he seemed to indicate that Jesus is really just Lord. Folklore. He's really just a story that's developed over time like a legend, like a fable. But the gospel account, the historical gospel account, doesn't read like a fable, does it you? It doesn't read like mythology. It reads like the real biographical events that take place in people's lives. Jesus went to a wedding, had a real town, had a real couple there with a real mother, had a real place called Cana. He went to a real table and sat with real people. And he encountered this event. So, so as we see this, we want to see Jesus, that he is drawn to our setting. Notice, first of all, we see the life that he enters. The life that he enters. The text says that Jesus was called. Look in verse number 1. And on the third day there was a marriage in the Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. Jesus received an invitation. He received a, uh, an invitation not only for himself, but his, his handful of disciples that he had. I don't think the whole roster of all 12 had been filled out, filled out at the time. I believe, uh, from, I recall from my uh, study, there may have been about seven disciples with him. And they were all invited to this celebration, this wedding there. And so Jesus is not forced to come to this wedding. He was not compelled to attend. This was not like a, a subpoena, a summons to have become before a court. 
It was simply a gracious invitation. Jesus, come to our wedding. If you have time, if you're this way, please come to our wedding. And Jesus willingly came. He was invited and He responded. Jesus took the time. He went out of His way. God doesn't owe you anything. Do you realize that? God doesn't owe you the time of day. You know, there's a a mindset of entitlement in the day and time in which we live. Many people feel as though they are owed something. They, They owe me. And owed simply because they exist, I guess. Here, Jesus doesn't owe them a visit. He doesn't have to come to this. God doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe us a thought in His mind. And yet the Bible said, Oh, how wonderful of your thoughts towards me. God doesn't owe us anything. And yet He thinks on us. And yet He's concerned with us. Jesus said, If your God of heaven sees the smallest sparrow sparrow fall from the sky and close the fields with the green grass and how much He thinks of us, how much He cares, He's not compelled. He doesn't owe us anything. He is not under any obligation to interact with us. So that's why the psalmist said in Psalm 8, 4, What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? The great God that created the universe. The great God that created all beings and all things and holds everything by the word of his power in his hand, controls every blade of grass, thinks on you. You. He thinks on you. He thinks on your name, your character, who you are as a person. You know, we'd just get all giddy if a celebrity named us, said something about us. You know, did you hear what they said about me, a celebrity? Man, did you? They mentioned my name. They, uh, they, they, they called, they said something about me. We'd get all giddy about that. What is man that thou art mindful of? The God of the universe has your best interest in mind. Your life, your days, your your personality, your character, your final end. He thinks on these things. Oh, what a picture of mercy that Jesus would even think about it. Attend. And yet He entered into their world, their family, their, their relationships. Here Jesus Son of God, God in the flesh, comes walking into a little wedding in a little poor village of Canaan. Oh, how merciful is that? Being the gentleman that he is, he would never force himself into any situation. He doesn't kick the doors in on people's lives. Did you notice there was an invitation first? I think about when Jesus was walking on the water. You remember how uh, in that stormy night the disciples were rowing, the boat was filling up with water, and how that Jesus, uh, uh, that the disciples saw the figure of Jesus walking on the water, and it said as though He would pass to them. And they cried unto Him, and then it is then that Jesus comes towards them. Jesus is a perfect gentleman. He'll never go where He's not wanted. All that took place, know this now, All that took place, every miracle, all the wonder of Himself that we see in this passage is all contingent on an invitation. Have you invited Him into your life? Have you invited Him into your heart? 
to come and, you know, it must have been difficult for Jesus to come at a party or a get-together or a thing like this and not take over. Isn't that what He does? He takes over. He is the Master. He's the one that has all the answers and all the all of the resources. He's the Master. And it's so easily when He comes into this wedding, we find Him taking the lead in a role. Making sure that the wedding is supplied. Listen, you don't invite Jesus in and to have Him set in a corner. He is invited in to take over. That's why it says at the church in Laodicea, which we'll talk about Wednesday night, He stands at the door and knocks. Here's a church that knows Christ, that's been saved, and yet Jesus is on the outside knocking. He doesn't violently beat on the door. He simply knocks. He's not begging, oh please, oh please, oh please let me into your life. But as a gentleman, he waits. He knocks at the door for us to open. Doesn't compel. Doesn't, doesn't burst the door in. He allows us to open, uh, to, to, to open the door and to be with Him. Jesus doesn't plead. He doesn't beg. He doesn't cry. He simply patiently knocks. When the door is open, He comes in. My question to you, for God to see what only Jesus can do in our lives he has to be invited. He has to be trusted. And they, and they wouldn't, listen, they wouldn't entrust Jesus with an invitation to their wedding if He was going to take over, if they didn't trust Him, if they didn't, if He was going to be a, some sort of uh, violent rebel rouser, some kind of person that would disrupt the party, disrupt the ceremonies. They, they trusted Him to come to their wedding. I mean, you wouldn't, you, listen, you wouldn't invite a fruitcake, uh, you know, uh, uh, somebody that's uh, three sheets in the wind to come to your, come to your wedding, your solemn occasion. You wouldn't you invite somebody you trust. Here, they invite Jesus into their lives. And trust There's so many people in our churches today, they claim the name of Jesus Christ, and yet they have the door squarely shut on having Him come in and have His way in their life. Squarely shut. He enters the life. That's merciful. For God to do anything in your life and my life is a, is a testimony to His mercy. But not only the life that He enters, but the lack that He engages. Look at verse number 3. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto Him, They have no wine. During this wedding feast, there was a problem. A very serious problem. They ran out of wine. Now, uh, we... We might not think a whole lot about that. Uh, and, and I'm not going to get into a sermon on wine and alcohol. That's, now's not the time to do that, okay? But here, well, they ran out of wine. In that Jewish culture of that day, wine was essential to any kind of celebration. One rabbi said, without wine, there is no joy. <laughs> that Without wine, without this sustenance, this essential part of of the celebration, there is no joy. You see, to run out of wine in a cultural culture that placed hospitality at a premium. Hospitality was a way of life to these people. They would go out of their way to try to, try to be hospitable to others, to strangers. And so to invite all these guests at their, at their wedding and to run out of the necessary things for that meal, well, it was like a black eye. I mean, if the bride found out, or the groom found out, it would be 
Oh my word, this will be... It's kind of like those moments in the wedding, you know, where the groomsman throws up. You know, the bride, uh, the bridesmaid passes out. I mean, you'll always be known. Oh, I remember their wedding. You remember the lady passed out, you know. Well, it would be like in their culture, you, know, you remember their wedding, they ran out of wine. I mean, it would be, they would be forever known as that couple that had a deficiency. It would, be, it, would have been, it would have been disastrous. It would have been humiliating to the couple who was just starting out to, their life together as husband and wife. You know, it's so reflective of our human condition. At our best, at our best, we come up short. We're limited. We are frail. We are deficient. At our best, we run out. There, are ne- there is never enough fill in the blank. Never enough money. Never enough possessions. Never enough happiness. Never enough sensual pleasure. Never enough vitality. Never enough life. Never enough health. Never enough house. Never enough power. Never enough position. We always come up short in life. Augustine was right when in his, in his confessions he said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord. Our hearts are restless until they rest in Thee. We'll always be deficient. We'll always have great need outside of Jesus Christ. You see, and he doesn't back away. You know, uh, Evan said something last night about football and it's something that they were saying, you know, at a certain time in the game, they said, lock up the, uh, the, lock up the women and the, and the, and the, and the kids because it's about to get ugly. I don't know if why it's just in my head this morning. It's things are about to get ugly. And Jesus sitting at this table and seeing the, the pale expression on, their, on his mother's face. The servants scratching their head and going, I don't know. You know, big good time for Jesus to say to his disciples, boy, it's about to get ugly in here. Let's leave. Let's just go. Let's just back out now. Let's just bow out quietly, say our goodbyes. We've got to go and bow out. That's not what Jesus did. You know, Jesus is not afraid of your deficiency. He's not afraid of your character flaws. He's not afraid of the deficiency of your economic condition, your your family deficiency, your history, your sin, your lust. He's not afraid of your deficiency. He's not going to bail. He's not going to run. He's going to be there. He engages this problem. He embraces it. There is no problem that He cannot surpass, that He cannot solve. Jesus is not afraid of our deficiencies. I have all the courage in the world today to tell you that there is no need in your life that cannot be met by the person and the work of Jesus Christ. No, I have no qualm about saying that. Un, unequivocated, un, un, uh, un, uh, with no parentheses added. Jesus can meet your need. Jesus can meet you in the midst of your problem, in the midst of your difficulty, no matter what it is. He has the answer. He has the ability. He, the lack that He engages, He engaged this situation. He's drawn to our settings. Listen, you know, if you're in a, job situation, you're looking for a job, you go to a company to interview there, and during the interview someone comes in and they, you know, my check's not being cleared. I don't know what the problem is, human resources, but my check didn't go through. Uh, I would lose all confidence all of a sudden. Their deficiencies would cause me to take a step back and maybe go somewhere else. 
the deficiencies of our lives never cause Jesus to back up. He is drawn to our weakness. That's mercy. That is God's mercy to come, be willing to come into your life with your messed up condition and your messed up character and your messed up problems and come in and say, I have the answer and I'm not leaving. I'm staying. I'm staying. I'm not leaving. In a world where so many people bail on relationships, thank God there is a Jesus that never bails, never leaves. He embraces, He embraces our deficiencies. Notice second of all, not only does He, uh, in mercy, Jesus is drawn to our setting, but in mercy, Jesus defies our shortage. The news of the shortage comes to Jesus from His mother. Mary, look in verse number 5. And His mother saith unto the servants, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. It seems as though Mary is in some sort of, I don't know, a director? What do you call the person that directs a wedding? A funeral? Uh, not a funeral. A marriage, a marriage coordinator? You know, a, a marriage coordinator. You know, they used to have shows about marriage coordinators and how difficult that job was to get everything. Mary must have been something like that, a marriage coordinator, because she evidently says some sort of authority in this wedding. She's telling the servants, you do what he says. So can we agree? Mary's got some sort of place, a wedding coordinator. She's attempting to make sure that everything goes smoothly at this wedding. And then disaster strikes. She tells it to Jesus, and Jesus' response here to our 21st century ears doesn't sound too good. How many of you have ever been puzzled by what Jesus says to his mama right here? All right, all right, I'll give you that. Notice what he said. Woman, what have I to do with thee? Thine mine hour is not yet come. Now, before you go on to say Jesus is a male chauvinist and it was more like, you know, he's watching the football game and, and telling his mom, Mom, beat it. I'm watching the game. That's not what Jesus is doing here. You see, first of all, the word woman here is not a derogatory woman. Woman? You know, <laughs> ever had a husband venture out on the limb and say, Woman, you know, don't do this or whatever, you know, and quickly back down, you know. Uh, but... It's not, that's not Jesus' tone. Matter of fact, the word woman here is a word of actually endearment. We don't have an, a, an English equivalent. I was thinking maybe like ma'am, uh, you know, ma'am or uh, something like that. But it's a term of respect, a term uh, of endearment. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the, in the ancient uh, uh, Greek writings, one of the, uh, the, uh, the Caesar uh, that was pursuing Cleopatra referred to Cleopatra as the same term, woman. He wasn't saying woman. You know, he was saying woman as a term of honor and respect towards a, a woman. Then he says, what have I to do with thee? What do you want with me? You know, we would all think. That, that's what we think in our mind. What do you want with me, woman? <laughs> No, that's not what Jesus said. It is a conversational phrase. It's like a colloquialism. It's something that is easily, a phrase easily said. And this is, this is what it gently indicates. Don't worry. Don't, you don't quite understand what's going on. Leave things to me. I will settle them in my own way. That's what he means. When he says, what have I to do with thee? He said, listen. I know you don't understand what's going on right now. But I want you to entrust that everything into my hands. So you're going to have to take my, 
Take my word for that phrase from the, some of the best scholars that I could, I could come up with. That's what he's indicating. He's saying, don't worry. Woman, mother, gentle woman, don't worry. You may not understand, but don't worry. I have everything in my power, in my control. And then he says, mine hour is not yet come. Now, this is a gentle reminder. That he must be about his father's business. Remember when Jesus was a 12-year-old boy and he was in the temple with the, the elders speaking to them and, and amazing them. And, and Mary says, why have you done this to your father? And I, such a great message, burning my heart lately. Why have you done this to our father? And he, he says to them, I, did you not know that I had to be about my father's business? This is kind of a gentle reminder. It's saying, you don't know what's going on here. But there's more at stake than just a wedding. An hour. Hour is not yet come. Jesus used that phrase in the Gospel of John over and over and over again to refer to His ultimate purpose in coming to earth. Remember in John 17, the high priestly prayer, right before He went into the Gethsemane and into this, His suffering, Mine hour has come. It is here and upon me now. The re- Jesus saying, I've got a long ministry ahead, three and a half years. Doesn't seem long, but I've got days ahead in which God will fulfill His purpose. But right now, I'm not going to reveal all my glory, just some. Maybe her thought was that Jesus would come out and all of a sudden before the whole public gathering there, the whole public gathering, uh, He would take the, somehow and create wine and give. I don't know what she knew about His ability. Surely she had some indication of who He was and what He could do. She knew of His birth. She knew of all the miraculous things. Maybe she thought that He would mesmerize and show the whole wedding party. And that was why He was there, who He was. Jesus said, no, that's not, not my time. And by, by, matter of fact, by the end of this story, the only people that knew what happened were Jesus, His disciples, and these servants, and probably His mother. That's it. The whole crowd didn't know it. The governor says, man, you've held the best for last. And all of the servants go, He doesn't know. He didn't know what, it was a secret. It wasn't given out to everyone. And so he was doing about his father's business, not to be known by all, because his hour had not yet come. Such a miracle publicized in such a way would have jeopardized the timetable of what was to take place in the future. You ever wondered about how many times Jesus did a miracle and told them, don't tell nobody. You know why? About hours, Jesus had his pulse on the finger of what was to take place in his life. He was in complete control. Now, now that we've got that squared away, I want you to see that he uh, defies our shortage. Look at the authority of his voice. Verse number 4, Jesus makes his statement. Verse number 5, His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Again, confidence that Jesus is going to take care of of the situation. That's what he told her. I'm going to take care. And you ever wonder? I mean, listen. And it lends weight to what I told you earlier about Jesus saying, hey, everything's under control. I've got everything. I'll take care of everything. It, it lends to the fact, because I always got puzzled between verse 4 and verse 5. It didn't make sense of what he said. It's like he didn't want to do nothing. And then his mother saying, oh, whatever he does, whatever he says, you take care of it. I think it makes perfect sense now. With the attitude is, I've got everything in hand, I'll take care of it. And, G- and Mary points to Jesus and tells the servants, do what he said. Whatever he saith unto you, do it. And in the following verses, Jesus gives the servants uh, some rather strange commands. He will not tell them <clears throat> to go to the market and get some more wine. That's not what he told them. 
I mean, that would be the natural way, right? (laughs) He didn't tell them to go down to the nearby houses and knock on doors and try to borrow wine from other people to diffuse this scandal. That's not what He told them to do. That would almost make sense. But no, He tells them to fill up some water pots. No wine in the equation, only water. Now, no grapes are part of the solution. And, 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 and yet, in the end, wine was produced. So many times, the meeting of our need is predicated on our willingness to hear and obey His voice. No wine involved in this. The servants were in the dark until they handed the cup to the governor who tasted it and said, this is wine like none other. It is all predicated on their their obedience to the Lord Jesus. You see, His, Jesus' commands, His authoritative voice is an extension of His mercy. If we remain, if He remained silent at this feast, there would have been no mercy. There would have been no miracle. Let me ask you, Daddy, Mom, are you willing to hear His voice and obey it? You're never going to see miracles. You're never going to see Jesus meet the need in your life, in my life, if I don't hear His voice and obey it. You know, these servants could have said, uh, you know, Jesus take the, uh, they said, take these water pots, fill them with water, and the servants could have said, you're not my boss. You don't tell me what to do. You don't tell me what to do. What you're saying does not make sense. It doesn't equal wine, Jesus. Jesus wants us to simply hear His voice and do what He says. How, however, however it may go against the grain of culture, against the grain of our own intellect, against the grain of what we want as a people, as a person. He wants us simply to hear His voice and obey Him. Teenager, young person, are you willing to do whatever He says, no matter how odd or countercultural it may seem? No matter how odd it may seem to, to love that friend at school that hates your guts? that does everything they can to embarrass you and to, and to berate you in front of others. It sounds absolutely ridiculous to love them, to turn that other cheek, to pray for those that despitefully use you. And yet at the same time, in order to turn water, and you know the reason why we don't see any more water turned to wine or see less miracles in our life? Because we're unwilling to obey exactly what He says because we think, well, it doesn't make sense. That's not what psychology says. That's not what what is in my character. That's not what I can do. I can't do that kind of thing. I can't just tell, turn the other cheek. I just can't say, uh, I'm going to love you and why you hate me. I, I can't. Listen, if we will obey Him and follow His voice as these servants did, we might see more water turned to wine. We might see more miracles. We might see more miracles in this church building, in this church house. We might see more miracles at this altar, in our young people's lives, in couples and marriages and homes and the people that occupy this building. We may see more miracles in people's lives if we will hear His voice and obey what He says. Here, they did that. And Jesus, what takes place? Jesus defies all their shortage. Not only the authority of His voice, but we see also the availability of these vessels. For Jesus to defy the shortage of wine, 
for him to meet the need, these servants had to listen to his voice and obey. And they did just that. I like in verse number, what is it, seven? Jesus said, them filled the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. No room for them to, for Jesus to say that he did, they didn't obey him. All the way to the top, full to the brim. Can't get more, no more water in them. He, they did exactly what he said to do in every detail, in every nuance. They did what Jesus said to do. And Jesus' instruction was to take the water pots, fill them with water. These water pots were nothing spectacular. Matter of fact, you know, we could go into a long study on, on these water pots and, and how that they're a picture of the old law. This was part of their ritual cleansing. They would have these large water pots. As people would come in, uh, they would do a ritual of washing of hands. They would scoop out water and pour it on the hands and pour it on the feet. It was ritualistic. It was part of cleansing. You were unclean if you didn't clean your hands and your feet when you went into a place to have a dinner, have a, uh, have a feast. And so they had to have cleansing. And there was a lot of them. But these were not decorative. These were not things uh, that you put pretty pictures on and you set in the corner and put flowers in. This is not decorative. This is like a bucket. You know, it's something in the basement that you use when you need to carry water. It's not anything spectacular. These set over the corner, they were utilities. They were used as a utility. Nothing spectacular about them. And yet, they were essential to this ritual. They were containers of necessity, not decoration. And yet, they were available. They were at hand. They were evidently near Jesus. He could see them take these water pots and fill them with water. You see, Jesus singles them out for displaying His power, His ability, His glory. They were filled with water and brought back into the presence of Jesus. These servants were told to draw out and give to the governor. Water was put in and wine was brought out. Now there's every kind of theological subjectiveness that, that people put in this about when it actually happened. When the water went in, did it turn to wine? When, the, when it took out, did it turn to wine? I don't know. All I know is water went in, wine come out. That's the miracle. It's two things that are absolutely uh, different from each other. It was only a miracle. You know, the Bible speaks of us as vessels. Second Corinthians 4, 7, we have this treasure, meaning Christ, in earthen vessels. Second Timothy tells us how that we are to be vessels meet for the Master's use. You know, these vessels are a lot like us. Empty to much a degree. Making ourselves available for God to fill us and to pour out His glory. You know, water is a picture of God's Word. Water is like a reflection. You know, if it's, if it's still water, you can see the reflection. It's like the Word of God. We look in the Word of God. We see ourselves. James 2 tells us that we're like a man that looks in a glass and we see ourselves. We see ourselves in God's Word. Wine is a picture of joy. It makes joy. I guess if you drink enough of it, it will make you joy. It gives joy. It's a, it's a picture of joy. Here, what do we see? Water going in. The Word of God going in. And what? Joy coming out. Joy bringing joy to others. Joy bringing joy to this world. Are we vessels that can be used for God to display His miracle power? To display His glory? 
Are we available for His use, willing to be used to the Lord? We may not know what He's up to. These vessels didn't know. They just thought they were cleansing pots. But all of a sudden, they became wine holders. Wine, wine jars, wine vessels that begin to distribute joy uh, to everyone. How in the world are you going to get wine out of water? Well, to be sure, He will accomplish what He sets out to do. How in the world is God going to bring joy to others? How is God going to use me in other people's lives? I don't know. I looked at myself in the mirror a long time ago and said, God, how in the world could you use someone like me in the lives of other people? I don't know. He put water in and wine came out. Somehow. God, how can you use me to teach a Sunday school class? God, how can you use me to speak to someone at a doorstep? How can you use me to sing a song to serve you in a certain way? I don't know. And some people, sometimes I've looked back and say, man, that's more of a miracle than they know. (laughs) But he always has the ability, if we'll take in water, he'll bring out wine. He can use you. No matter your age, no matter your youth, or your, 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 your agedness, God can use you. He defies our shortage. He draw, he's drawn to our setting. Finally, He defines our sufficiency. He defines our sufficiency. Verse number 9, the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine. He knew not whence it was. But the servants which drew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom and said unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set good wine, but when men have well drunk, that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. Jesus did not have to go to this wedding. We've made that clear. He didn't have to do anything about the shortage of wine. He could have sat there with his arms folded and didn't do anything. His hour had not yet come. Jesus was not required to give anything outside of the natural realm of possibility. He wasn't required to work a miracle. He could have told them, go out there and crush some grapes for crying out loud and put it in a cup and start giving it to people. He could have said any number of reasonable, earthly, natural things to do. But yet in mercy, in compassion, in pity, He attends and He works and He supplies. You see, He proves to be our all in all. If there's anything we get from this scene and the onset of Jesus' earthly ministry is that He proves to be sufficient for every need. All and all. Notice, first of all, the best is discovered. We read about what the governor had said. They, they, took the, uh, the, uh, they dipped into the water pots and bare to the governor. The governor drank it. All of a sudden, uh, there is a flood of flavor in the man's mouth. He cannot believe what he has just drunken. I'm sure that the dilemma was kept quiet for a while. When the wine ran low, the people began to whisper and look for a solution. The servants did exactly what Jesus commanded. They they stuck a cup down in the water and drew it out and bare it to the governor. When the governor did, the servants had to the servants had to smile, didn't they? When they saw that look on the governor's face, they had to smile. They knew exactly what happened. It had been a miracle. They knew what Jesus had done. I like what one preacher said. Those who have a servant's spirit always receive the secrets of the Lord. 
Those that are serving the Lord Jesus. You know, if you've been serving the Lord Jesus any length of time, I hope you've been able to see God do things that only He can do and smile and the world go, how in the world is that possible? How in the world did that happen? That's just amazing. And you sling back and smile. Oh, that's mercy. That's mercy. God's mercy in my life. God's mercy in my church. God's mercy in our in my life. Here we see uh, that there, there's a reflection of God's mercy. These servants smile at each other when the governor says, Every man uh, that bringeth for a bring, uh, that bring, uh, beginneth doth set the good wine, and then when men have drunk, then they bring out the worst, but thou hast kept the good unto now. The indication is that usually the best wine is served first. So the, the best on the shelf is put before everybody, but after everybody is drunk for a while, and, and maybe their taste buds are not what they were when they first started, they bring out that which is inferior, that which is less expensive, that which is a little bit bitter and serve it in hopes that nobody would notice. Oh, but you have been saved. But he, but he says, oh, but you saved the best for last. But isn't that the how it works with Jesus? Isn't that how it works with serving the Lord Jesus? God always saves the best for last. For the world around us, life is as good as it's ever going to get. For the lost world in this place, in this, in this world, life is not going to get any better than it is right now. But with Jesus, He always saves the best for last. He always saves the best part for that which is yet to come. The best is discovered. But only that, the belief is developed. Look at verse number 11. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cain of Galilee and manifest forth His glory and His disciples believed on Him. Remember, this is not about a wedding feast. It's not about mending a social disaster. It's not about making a wedding couple's day as a sweet delight instead of a sour disaster. No, when Jesus works in our lives... When He manifests His power and His glory in our being through our lives, it is for us to see Him more clearly. And for Him to accomplish His purpose in our lives. When we read verse number 11, we need to understand it's not them that they first believed on Jesus. No, I believe I believe there are indications earlier that they believed on Him. If you'll read in the previous chapter... Uh, uh, Andrew went and got Simon. Simon came to Jesus. Andrew and Simon, they, they believed that he was Messiah. And then they went and got, remember Nathaniel sitting under a tree and Jesus said, oh, here's Nathaniel, a, a man who, whose, whose spirit has no guile. And he says, well, how did you know? He said, I saw you under that tree. Oh, he believed. He couldn't believe it. He couldn't. He believed because it was a miracle. Jesus even knew him. There was some semblance of belief in these guys Causing them to follow Jesus, even be there in the first place. So it wasn't that they began to believe for the first time. No, they believed on Jesus. But it was at this point that their faith progressed. That's key. That's key. Why does God work in your life? Why does God work in mine? As we sit at this table and we see what Jesus does and, and we realize that He does the same things in our lives, why does He do, do that? Why didn't He just do that the first day He saved me and I have all the faith that I need uh, throughout entire lives? That's not the way God does. He progresses our faith. He strengthens it. 
He makes it stronger as days go by. He strengthens us little by little. Listen, I had nowhere near the faith in the Lord Jesus when I first said yes to Him on March the 20th, 1994 than I do today. I have more faith today. I have more trust in Him. You see, He's proved Himself time and time again, showing me, progressing my my faith. He's grown it. He's matured it. Their belief that Jesus was Messiah was solidified in that hour. they, They looked to Him more earnestly. They saw Him more for who He truly was. When Jesus performs such feats in our lives, feats of His mercy in our lives, it causes us to earnestly clave to Him. Trust Him even more. Oh, what is the song we sing? Oh, for faith, oh, for grace to trust you more. Trust you more. I'm sorry, you've not arrived in your faith walk. None of us are Abrahams in this building, I'm telling you. None of us have arrived. We've come to a day of fruition and completion that our, we cannot have any more faith than what we already have. No, the truth of the matter is, God is growing your faith. God is growing mine. Miracle by miracle, time by time, answer to prayer by answer of prayer, inside of the Scripture by inside of the Scripture, He grows our faith. There's an organization that I found on the internet this morning called Mercy USA. It is a non-profit relief organization, the development organization dedicated to uh, to relieving human suffering and supporting individuals in various countries and their communities to be more self-sufficient. Their projects focus on improving health, nutrition, and access to safe water. Additionally, they engage in promoting economic and educational growth, sustainability through world, through global efforts. Their motto, listen to their motto. Their motto is helping people Help themselves. Well, that may be their motto, but their motto does not equal their name. Mercy is helping people that cannot help themselves. That are completely bankrupt. They can't help their condition. They can't help. It is to look upon them with pity and compassion that is motivated to interact, engage in that situation. We're deficient. We can't meet the necessities of life. We're always going to come up short. Deficient in our strength, our own will, our own mind, our own hearts. Lamentations and Lamentations. Jeremiah said it clearly in 3.22. It is of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed, overwhelmed, put in the grave every day. But His mercies are new like the morning dew. Only Jesus in His mercy can meet your need. Only Jesus can meet your need of your future plans. Only Jesus is trustworthy to follow into the future. Only Jesus is, per- is perfectly capable of handling your health situation, your, your, your financial problem, your spiritual need, your great downfall, your predispositions to sin. God is able to overcome them and to meet those needs. He's able to meet our needs. This is a mercy feast. It's of God's mercies that Jesus even walked into that building It's of God's mercies that Jesus even 
made the command to get the water. But it is of God's mercies that Jesus even turned that water into wine. As many authors says that the water was brought to Jesus and when it saw Jesus it blushed and turned to wine. I don't know how he did it. The truth of the matter is when I look at my life and look at where I am today, I don't know how in the world he did it. How in the world he put me here? How in the world he put me preaching his word and and, and doing His will and, and trying to do what I can uh, to lead a people to go and, and accomplish the work of the kingdom of God. How in the world did I get here? How in the world did He take water? Me, back in 2001, 2000, 1999, simply just starting to really read my Bible. Take in that water and somehow make wine out of it. I don't know how He did it. He did it in my life. He does it. In my life. He'll do it in yours. He'll do it in yours. Let's all stand to our feet as we come to a moment of invitation. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Listen, there is gospel in this. If you're here this morning and you have never received Christ as your Savior, you're deficient. When you stand before a holy God, you'll stand there in all your sin, all your insufficiency. And He'll say to you, I never knew you, ye that work iniquity. Depart from me, I never knew you. You'll go into everlasting destruction. You are insufficient. If you're here and you've never trusted Christ, you need to do that today. Why don't you welcome Him in? Why don't you open the door to your heart and life and say, Jesus, come in. I've got problems. Come in this house. Come into this heart. I need you to be merciful on me for the first time in my life. I need you to be merciful to me. God, God, I need your mercy. I'm not sufficient for these things. I'm not sufficient for the days ahead. God, come. Come into my heart. Come into my life. Maybe you are a child of God and you're insufficient for the tasks ahead of you. Jesus is more than enough. As I've said since the day I started preaching, Jesus is more than enough. He's sufficient to meet your need. You're lost today. You're, you're a Christian. You know the Lord is your Savior. But there's still so many problems. Still so many fleshly things. Still so much ground. You're not what you ought to be. Listen, Jesus is sufficient for that need. Why don't you come to Him? Open up that door. Why don't you welcome Him in? He's not going to barge His way in. He's not going to hogtie you and make you go His way and open up your door. Open your, open your door. Invite Him in. Jesus, come. Take over my problem. Take Him to that door, that dirty closet in your heart and life. That place where nobody else is supposed to look. It's the place that's off limits to everybody else. Take Him to that bitterness. Take Him to that... Take him to that Oh, that wicked childhood memory, that thing that, that thing that destroyed you, it seems to be a cancer that eats at you. Come, welcome Jesus into it. Open the door. Your insufficiency can, may, can be made a miracle for His glory. Why don't you do that? Dear Heavenly Father, God, we pray that during this invitation you'd reach hearts, you'd touch people's lives. God, be glorified. Manifest your glory through, uh, through this message and through your people. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm trusting to the unseen hand. We hope and pray that today's episode of the Unseen Hand podcast has been a help and blessing to you. For more information such as other podcasts, ministry helps, blog posts, previous sermons, or how to contact Brother Brown directly, just go to RonnieBrown.net. Join us next time for another message from Brother Ronnie on the Unseen Hand Podcast. Until then, may God's unseen hand gently guide you on your journey home.
the arm.